Our gospel text this morning is from Matthew 3, beginning at verse 11, on your page 3 in the New Testament. Follow along as I read. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, Suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending up like a dove and alighting on him.
And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. We turn our inner lives toward you even as we have turned our physical lives towards you in coming to this place this morning. We come to this place to remember, Lord, that you were baptized by your cousin John. And it was a major turning point in your life and for John also. We pray now that as we read this word and as we proclaim the message of this text, that your Holy Spirit will fall upon us, that we will hear your words of affirmation, that you are my beloved children in whom I am well pleased. Empower us for our mission and our lives each day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a group that are visiting um, Israel this coming May. And one of the things I'm trying to do to prepare that group is to have some awareness of the geography of Israel, which is very important in the story. In fact, some have said that the Holy Land is like a fifth gospel. It preaches to us in the geography the events of Jesus' life and the history of Israel. And it is powerful. 150 miles from north to south, sitting at the other end of the, of the Mediterranean, in, an, in the backwaters, if you will, of the Mediterranean, but has become historically one of the significant places geographically in the world. To the north, there's 10,000 foot above sea level Mount Hermon. The snows melt on that mountain and come down into the lake at Galilee at 650 feet below sea level with a tropical climate in just a few miles. The lake's 12 miles wide, seven, long seven miles wide. At the southern end near Tiberias, the lake opens up and the waters begin to drop into the Jordan River and run all the way down to the Dead Sea. In less than 100 miles, the elevation drops from 650 below sea level to 1,200 feet below sea level, the lowest place on the face of the earth. And it's like going from the high Sierras, from Mount Hermon in the north, all the way down into the Mojave Desert, or Death Valley. And in the summertime, you don't just wander around down in the Jordan River unless you are well prepared with plenty of water and salt and food and all of that because it's hot as hell. It was some, somewhere along that snaky river of Jordan that John the Baptist began to preach and to teach. 
and to baptize. And people went out to listen to John from the whole country. They journeyed down to the river 20 miles or plus. It's hard to know exactly. It's hard to identify the exact site of where John was preaching and baptizing. But people found him. The religious and political authorities and the common people went out to that river to listen to his call to become prepared for the coming of the Lord. That God was breaking into their history in a new way, that the promises of all the prophets of the Old Testament were coming to fulfillment and that people needed to get ready by repenting of their sins, of turning around, and of walking a whole new direction as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so whenever pilgrims go out to the Jordan River to see the various places where Jesus did ministry, one of the places they visit is the Jordan River where they renew their baptismal vows. We remember our vows, don't we? Do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord? Do you intend to be his disciple, to obey his word, and to show his love? Will you be a faithful member of this congregation, giving of yourself in every way? There's something that happens to us in the waters of baptism. And it is so symbolic. I remember the first time I visited the baptismal site. My first group that I took to Israel in 1971. And the whole group, around 30 of us, who had finished to study the Bible all year long in the Bethel series, the Bethel Bible study program, they all wanted to renew their vows and to be rebaptized, or at least to renew their vows and to uh, have the water of the Jordan dunked, uh, dripped on them or them dunked into the water, although that in itself is, is dangerous. And so I baptized every one of the people on this tour. And the last person to be baptized was my wife. She wanted the complete dunking. And so I immersed her in the Jordan and as she came up out of the water, a motorboat came running very close to us. And the waves of the water absolutely splashed all over us. I'll never forget that. It seemed like a parable of our marriage. <laughs> Tempestuous, passionate, adventurous, loving. It's a precious memory. For our group that's going to Israel in May, we've been reading James Martin's book, Jesus, A Pilgrimage. I recommend it whether you're going to Israel or not. It's, all, it's like a devotional guide to the Gospels. It takes you from the, to these various uh, geographical places that were important in Jesus' life. And he tells the story that he, he was ordained as a Jesuit priest and uh, has become a well-known biblical theologian and a, a teacher of spiritual formation in the Jesuit order. If you've been through the 
through the Ignatian prayer exercises, you know what I'm talking about. The Jesuits have this wonderful discipline of, of, of learning to pray by reading biblical stories and text and identifying with the characters in the story. They think the story. They feel the story. And they incorporate the message of the story. They become a part of the story. And in the process, the Word of God is written on their hearts. It's a very powerful way of praying. It's what we are doing here in our group. And it's very powerful. Years had passed since Martin's ordination. And he'd never been to the promised land. He'd never been to Israel. Everyone encouraged him to go. So he went. He joined with a, a fellow Jesuit named George. And they went from place to place around Israel, visiting the sites, reading the scriptures, praying together. George had been there before. And they were on their way back to Jerusalem, down through the, the Jordan Valley. They saw the sign on the roadside pointing baptismal site. And they turned off the road, dusty road. At one time, the entrance to this site was heavily mined by the Israeli army. It's been cleaned up. Uh, but now it's just a dusty road to that site by the river. George said, I've been there. I do not need to renew my baptismal vows. After all, all that agricultural runoff from Jordan and Israel has polluted the waters. They're, it looks like uh, green soup in some ways. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll wait and I'll watch. They got down to the river. Both decided to walk into it carefully. And James became playful. And he began to splash water on his friend. And the process of their sort of having a water fight as a couple of kids might. George got water into his mouth, into his throat. And it traumatized him. That's the last thing he wanted to happen. And it really ticked him off at his friend. That he'd splashed water in his face. He ran out of the water, and James followed him. They retrieved their bottles of water out of the car and washed their throats out as much as they could. James pulled out a traveler's bottle of Listerine and gave it to George, and George gargled with it. And used the whole bottle. Now James was really angry. They got in the car and there was total silence. No talking between these two friends. A wall was building between them as they journeyed in the car down the valley and up to Jerusalem. Finally, it opened up and they were able to share, but... James Martin shared that as he reflected upon this, 
how, and asks himself the question, how is it a couple of Christians, of, of devout priests, of, of followers of Christ, who were brothers in Christ, could allow such a thing to happen to them, to divide them, to separate them, to cause them to be angry with each other and uh, unable to speak to one another for some period of time. And Martin said this, he said, I realized that what was going on here was simply a testimony to the fact that there is still sin in every believer's heart, that the line of sin runs through every believer's heart and it continues to be an abiding reality. And he said, I realize in many ways, this is what the baptism of John was about. He was calling the sinners, those who knew about God perhaps, but had fallen away from right relationship with God. Those who knew about justice, but in whose lives there was no justice those who knew about peace, but had not walked in the way of peace. And John was calling the nation to get right with God, to confess their sins, to allow themselves to be reconciled to God and to one another and to lead a totally new life. Sometimes find ourselves in conflict with our dearest friends and we bear testimony to the fact that there is still sin in our lives and it's difficult under the best of circumstances to get along with each other totally over time and we have to learn how to deal with conflict and to confess to one another and to seek forgiveness to make amends this last week, out of the blue, my old high school childhood friend from Texas called me on the phone. I think it's been nearly 15 years since we've seen each other. We talk on the phone often, or not often, but periodically, to catch up. He was the guy that went with me to Oklahoma City in 1956, and we went forward in the Billy Graham meeting. When he became a Christian, he was a student at MIT. I was at Texas Tech. He was the smart one. When he became a Christian, it meant so much to me. And we were, have been across the years great encouragement to each other. Kay and I introduced him to his wife, who is my wife's cousin. And I officiated at their marriage quite a few years ago now. And that marriage is one of those experiences I'll never forget. They're his family that saw me grow up, saw me marrying their son now to my wife's cousin. And in the middle of that marriage, it was like I had tunnel vision. I could see into the depths of reality and the power of love and all that had transpired and how we had shaped and formed each other's lives. And I just came unglued, weeping. Kind of like the groom yesterday in the wedding that I did here. He tried to make it through his vows. And it took me two or three times to get him through. And he was weeping. 
And it was not tears of sadness, but it was tears of joy of being united with this beautiful young lady. Mike and I had a wonderful conversation on the phone and remembered some of those some of the, those events together, caught up on our kids and spouses. And, I mean, it's a family thing after all. He's a Christian. I'm a Christian. We started talking about what was going on this last year, and I shared with him how distressed I had been by all the acrimony and the polarization in the political process this last year. And he said, well, I've never been more happy. And I'm really happy with the results of the election. And we laughed together. At one time, we would have been perfectly of the same worldview in almost everything. West Texans shaped and formed by the culture and the politics. I reminded him that we were brothers in Christ, and he knows that. We laughed some more together. He says, I've always known that you were this blue California <laughs> progressive liberal That was barely true. And I knew he was red and of a different political party. There are lots of folks over this country who know each other well and who are in families where there are these different perspectives maybe different worldviews who can barely speak to one another. And what that about is about is the remaining dividing, separating power of sin in all of our lives. Unable to affirm our common humanity, to affirm what we hold together as fellow citizens, in love of country, in love of church, and yet somehow strangely divided, suspicious, lacking in trust. This is what I'm talking about. Now, Jesus and John were cousins, weren't they? They shared a common story. And John was calling the nation to repent, and he about halfway at least believed that Jesus was Israel's Messiah, his cousin, and that Jesus had come to inaugurate the kingdom of God and to do the very same thing that John was doing, and that is call sinners to repent, to get right with God and to welcome the coming of the kingdom of heaven into their lives. And when John saw his cousin Jesus standing in that long line, he thought to himself, what is my cousin Jesus doing standing in the line with sinners? 
He's in the wrong line. Because if there's anyone who's pure, if there's anyone who's holy, if there's anyone who's righteous, it's got to be Israel's Messiah. But there was Jesus standing in that long line of sinners waiting to be baptized, to pass from unclean to clean, from outsiders to insider. And so John, his response to his cousin Jesus was simply this. How is it that you're coming to me to be baptized? I need to be baptized by you. And that at least shows some conflict, some different worldview, some differing theological perspective between these two men who were cousins, who shared so much in common. You see, John had this worldview that when Messiah would come, that he would rally the troops of Israel and the powers of the heavens, all the the angels of heaven would come and throw out the sinners, get rid of all that was wrong within Israel, and establish a whole new world order, and it would happen suddenly. So with Jesus standing in front of him in that line of sinners, it was incongruent with his expectations. Nevertheless, Jesus said to him, it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now look, cousin, you baptize me. Because in the waters of this baptism, I am beginning to identify with the very reason that God sent me. I'm identifying with the sinners of the world, with the people who know they need God, that they need reconciliation and healing, people who are broken and wounded. I'm standing in that line as the sinless Son of God. Now baptize me. And John consented. He took Jesus and he immersed him, submerged him into the waters of the Jordan. And when Jesus came up out of the waters, he saw the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit falling upon Jesus like a dove. And he heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the next time that those words would be heard from heaven, Peter, James, and John would be with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus had been teaching them that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to die, and to be raised on the third day for the salvation of the world. Once again, as Jesus was glorified, the voice came from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Obey him. Come into his worldview. Let him fulfill all of your expectations and teach you how the kingdom comes in the world. But to the very end, this was difficult for John. He'd been arrested thrown into prison. His expectation was that with Jesus, if he was the Messiah, that surely the Messiah would release him from jail. 
And so he sent two of his disciples to talk to Jesus and to ask him, are you the one that we are expecting or should we wait for someone else? That to me says so much about John's struggle and the necessary redefinition of his expectation of understanding of who his cousin Jesus was. And all Jesus did was he told his, John's disciples, you go tell John what you see and hear. The blind are seeing. The lame are walking. Lepers are being cleansed. The dead are being raised. And blessed are those who take no offense at me. Aren't you glad that this is how the kingdom of God comes into our world? I don't want Jesus to get out of that line of sinners, even though he was sinless. I don't want him to lose his identification with people like me and people like you. <laughs> at one point along the way, John's gospel says that when John saw Jesus, he looked at him and he witnessed to the crowds, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. Consistent with that Old Testament message, the lamb on the Day of Atonement was placed on the altar and it was the blood of that lamb that made atonement for the sins of the world. And the New Testament says that Jesus was that lamb and that when he died on the cross and shed his blood, that he was making atonement for the sins of the world, that he was rescuing us and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves giving to us grace, mercy, accepting us just as we are, just as I am, without one plea. I come to you, Lord, accept me as I am. Move me from unclean to clean. Wash me. Make me whole. Thank you for coming to identify with the human condition for the sake of rescuing us, of transforming us, and bringing your kingdom to reality. That's the line that Jesus is in. And I'm so glad that he stood in that line and waited and maybe even argued a bit with his cousin about who he was as he submitted himself in humility as one who was beginning that long journey up to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die and be raised on the third day. That message is still in some ways scandalous. We would prefer the way of power and force. Just come in and clean things up, Lord. And there's a lot to clean up, isn't there? I don't care what side you're on in all the great issues of our life. There's a lot to clean up. 
and the ancient problems of our getting along, of living as a people at peace together, of finding peace in our world remains a haunting struggle for humanity. And the New Testament says the only way those issues are healed is in the saving love of God revealed in Christ, the Lamb of God, who brings us back to God and us to one another and makes us a people who have been baptized into God's way. And so I close with that final word of Jesus on the mount on the day in which he ascended to his Father. When he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is the person and the message of Jesus that the church carries in its heart as we do the mission of God in the world. We go as God's humble servant, children, and people to love our brothers and sisters, our cousins, and our neighbors into the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Join with me in our affirmation of faith. Please stand, would you please, from our confession of 67, words on the meaning of baptism. By humble submission to John's baptism, Christ joined himself to men and women in their need and entered upon his ministry of reconciliation in the power of the Spirit. Christian baptism marks the receiving of the same Spirit by all his people. Baptism with water represents not only cleansing from sin, but a dying with Christ and a joyful rising with him to new life. It commits all Christians to die each day to sin and to live for righteousness. In baptism, the church celebrates the renewal of the covenant with which God has bound us to God's very self. Amen. You may be seated as we receive our morning offering.
Please stand and sing with us our response to the word. Just as I am, Lord, I come. Just as I am without one plea, but that my blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Lamb of God, you emptied yourself of heaven's riches and came to share our lot. You made yourself poor so that by your poverty we might become rich. Perfect in purity, you submitted to baptism like any sinner in need of cleansing. So many today need your tender care. Tend your refugees, footsore, threadbare, humiliated by their loss. Tend your prisoners, lonely and abandoned. Tend your addicted ones, trapped by lethal hungers. Tend your traumatized ones, your lonely ones, your depressed ones, your sick and frail ones. Lord Christ, welcome our brothers and sisters whose calling this day is to die. Escort them by a party of angels into your radiance and enlighten them with the rays of your love. Lord Jesus Christ, you who were baptized like any sinner, love us sinners and intercede for us in the hour of our need. And so as we bring you these gifts, we ask that you will use them and that you will use us for your work in this world. Even as we pray for the day when your will is done on earth as in heaven, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The closing hymn in your red hymn book is number 283. We are God's people. The chosen of
And so the Apostle Paul said, we have become ambassadors of God's reconciling love for the world. And we are able to function in that calling because, as the Apostle said, he, our Christ, was made to be sin so that we might receive and become the righteousness of God in him. Go forth with that new identity as baptized ones called to be the servant children of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.